Hi. Hi, everyone. Welcome to BibleQuest.tv. Um, I'm by myself today. So if you see me getting a little um, mixed up, it's because I have no uh, technical help here today. <laughs> Everybody left me. They're over at a camp, working at the camp today. So I'm doing Bible Quest by myself. And it's going to be a little bit of a different format. Um, you can still ask questions. I do want you to ask questions as we go through what I'm presenting today. Use the Q&A button that's uh, in your Zoom app. Now, since we're not doing this on Stephen's Facebook page, anybody coming in from the Facebook page is not going to be, be uh, able to hear it. But I did make a post on, on his Facebook page saying, come on over here to the Zoom app, BibleQuest.tv. Okay, let me, let me get started here. Make sure I have everything going. Uh, you guys can ask questions. In fact, it wouldn't be, it, it would help me a lot if you just go ahead and type in something in the Q&A box. Let me know that you can hear me because uh, there's no way I can tell right now if I don't uh, have some feedback from you. Just open up the Q&A box, say something or type something in there, and I'll know that you're hearing me pretty well. Okay. Now, as we're going through this stuff, it's going to be a little different today. Okay, I do. Thank you, Emma, for telling me you hear me. Okay. It's going to be a little different today, like I said, since I'm by myself. I still want your questions to come in, and uh, I'll, I'll keep the panel open here so I can watch them. But if I can't get to it before we close down, I will go through each of them. Um, so last week uh, on the show, I had mentioned how four people chose to be baptized into Christ. Let me just get my slides going here, um, here in Honesdale. And, and that was an exciting day, as I mentioned. And each one of them went into the, the nice, gentle waters of Lake Wall and Paul Pack. And, you know, over the following few days, though, from that, I started thinking, uh-oh, watch out. When I start doing that, I start asking myself questions. And, and so I thought that I would ask you guys in the audience some questions. Um, what we have here from last week were four rational individuals who changed. They changed their thinking. They, they changed their very lives at that moment in time. First question, why? Why would they change who they are in regards to Jesus Christ? Uh, to become a different person. Uh, that basically, that's what it means to repent, to change. And why would anyone do that? Now, don't worry, I know some of you will be listening in on the podcast. Some of you are Christians, some of you are not. Um, those of you who are watching live or the podcast. So I'll, don't worry, I'm not going to ask anyone to change. I'm, I'm not going to ask anyone to, to believe in something other than what you already believe right now. But I will ask you a favor. I want you to consider something. Please hear me out. I need your help. I need you to help me to understand something. Certain things in the past happened that cannot be explained, at least not easily. It can't be quickly dismissed, and yet most people dismiss it. I suspect that some of you did at one time, or maybe still do. I know I did. I dismissed it at one time. And so here's what I want us to do. Let's imagine that you're actually living in a real place and time back in time, during the first century, at the height of the Roman Empire. 
and you've been hearing reports about a man. Maybe you even saw him. His name is Jesus. And he's going from town to town. And let's just think, pretend that, well, you're really not paying too much attention to him or, or what he's saying. But you start becoming aware of the controversies and the turmoil that's surrounding him. And then the authorities, they arrest him. They put him on trial and he's executed. You're aware of all this because it's not something that was done under a rock. There was more than one man involved in this. There were a lot of people involved in all of this. Now the story gets crazy, though. After we're living, imagining, you're helping me out with this, right? Pretending we're in the first century. You've gone through all of this, listening and following this man to some extent. He's dead, and the story gets crazy. Because after his execution, you're, going, you're just going about your norm, normal daily life, and then you hear these crazy rumors around this man. He came back from the dead. Really? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Then let's say that personally you know someone, one of the witnesses who claim they actually saw him, this man who was executed on that horrible cross, hanging there, bleeding, gasping for his final breaths. And then finally, as, as the authorities, the Jewish authorities and Rome intended, he died. But now he's back from the grave, walking around and talking to people. What on earth would be going through your mind right now if that actually happened? I mean, would you be thinking, saying something like, well, that's nice, good for him, and then just go home? <laughs> I wouldn't. I'd be saying things like, well, hold on a minute. I need to talk to this guy if that happened, right? I've got to find out what's going on here. If he came back from the dead, what about me? Can I? What about my family and others? Or, or something like that. I don't know what I'd be thinking. I can barely imagine what that experience would have been like. But the truth is, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of this religious movement called Christianity. It's at the heart of it all, right? But did it really happen? Or is it just something that somebody invented? They made it up. A myth, a story that was contrived entirely by men, just for whatever ulterior motives, I have no idea. Because if that really happened, then there's something about life that many of us don't understand. And at one time, I needed to answer that question for myself. In fact, everyone who was alive Anyone listening to the podcast, watching this program, if you haven't answered it, we need, you got to answer it. There's some, expo, there's some things that need to be explained here, and that's why I've asked people, I need some help to understand this. Did it really happen? Because if it didn't happen, then what is this movement all about? If it didn't happen, friends, then it's a hoax. Because before Jesus died, he claimed he would come back in three days. And if he didn't, what is it? It's a hoax perpetrated on us by somebody. I don't believe it's a hoax. Don't get scared for those who know me. I don't believe it's a hoax. But how can I confirm that? I mean, how can I tell or show other people it's not a hoax? 
by looking at all the data. I'm talking about historical data, legitimate information that we have at our disposal. I mean, like I said, this was not done under a rock when Jesus lived. There was a lot of people involved in this, not just one man. I don't know if I got my slides up right, but let me see if I can get to my slides right. Yes, there is. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about data. Actually, I'm talking about two sources of data, independent sources. Obviously, the first one is the biblical record. But there's a lot of people who don't want to accept this record. Why is that? What would be their motive to reject that record? I don't know. But fortunately, for those who do reject the biblical record, like I did at one time, like most of us do, did, there's another reliable source, a secular, non-biblical, historical source or record. And I'm for one, I, for one, I'm going to consider all sources, both of these sources, and I'm going to compare them because as we put all of the data together, we find something amazing, something that cannot be explained, at least not naturally. And it's not just the resurrection, by the way, that I'm referring to. It's something else which cannot be explained on the same magnitude. And that's what I meant when I said, I've got some questions and I need your help with understanding this. There was a physician, a doctor by the name of Luke, living in the first century who wrote about a man named Paul. Now, Paul was in Athens, Greece at this time, at one time. He was waiting for his two friends and this, we're talking about the great city of Athens, the, the center of Greek gods, the center of philosophy, the Greek philosophy. And as Paul was going through the city, he saw that it was full of idols, statues like these, monuments all over the place. And this bothered him because it went against his grain. And as he went through the city meeting people, he was talking with them about the man, Jesus Christ, our subject. Now, we don't have to know a lot about Jesus to understand why these philosophies and the pagan gods provoked Paul, right? As he was going through the marketplace talking about Jesus, he ends up meeting some of these religious philosophers who actually worshipped these gods. And they heard Paul say, I'm sorry, they heard Paul speaking about Jesus, and they asked him, come tell us what is this new thing? that you're talking about. New thing? Well, this new thing, as they call it, was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's what Paul said to those, those men. He said, the times of ignorance of God over, I'm sorry, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given full assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Catch this. According to Paul, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was an actual event which happened. Which, by the way, happened uh, just a few years prior to this. But notice he said it was an assurance. A proof, in other words, of some future event. And that event being the righteous judgment of God. Paul said that this assurance, this proof, 
which was the raising of a man from the dead, this, this implies, therefore, that it had to be what? An event, a factual event. If it didn't happen, if it wasn't in Paul's words to these men, it would have no meaning. There'd be no basis for making such a statement like that. He'd be a fool. In fact, some of them thought he was a fool the moment he mentioned the resurrection. But we'll talk more about that in a minute. But that's what he's claiming here in verse 31. What he's saying, what, what, what's he saying? Because of this event, this man's resurrection, you guys can be sure that God's judgment will come. As far as Paul was concerned, the resurrection of Jesus was certain. It happened. Now, I find that interesting. Because he also said something else, not only interesting, but astounding. When he was writing to the Corinthians in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, And if Christ has not been raised from the raised, rather, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ had not come back from the dead, then whatever Paul is saying is worthless. That's his words. In vain. Worthless. And like I said a few minutes ago, it either happened, the resurrection, or it's a hoax, a big lie. In fact, that's what Paul says in the very next verse. He said, do I have it up? Yeah. He said, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. In other words, Paul would be a liar. And that's what misrepresenting God is about. It means. And this means then you cannot trust his word. You cannot trust this Bible if the resurrection of Christ didn't happen. But that presents a problem for a lot of people today. How does anyone come to know the truth after 2,000 years? Because it says in this Bible, is that, that's how I know it. Well, Paul said, if it didn't happen, you can't trust him or the rest of the apostles. They're all liars if it didn't happen. All right, let me state this first. I do not believe in blind faith. And I hope all of you who are watching or listening, I hope you don't believe in blind faith either. Rational thinking does not accept things claiming to be true without sufficient evidence. I've heard some call that the, the law of rationality, which basically states one ought to justify his conclusions by adequate evidence. Therefore, it's either true that Christ was not raised from the dead, or it's true that he was. One of those statements is irrational. If it's not based on adequate evidence, it's irrational. So let's look at some facts. First of all, Crucifixion was not just a means of torture or a means of executing someone. As horrible as that was, its purpose went way beyond that. It was about destroying the man as a human being, destroying his reputation, destroying him morally, physically, and humiliating him beyond measure. That's what its purpose was, to make a show of it so that you would not consider doing anything against the Roman Empire. 
if you ended up on that cross, you were a worthless criminal. And everyone knew it. So the question becomes, did Rome succeed in destroying Jesus's reputation? You may be surprised. They did. They did destroy his reputation completely. And we have evidence that indicates that. Some of you may have seen this, this piece before, right? It's, it's, uh, if you've been one of my classes, uh, on my Bible classes, it's called uh, Alex Semenos Graffito. And it was discovered in 1857. And what it is, it's an inscription carved in plaster that was on a wall um, in a home or a structure near, near ancient Rome. And today it's in the Roman Museum. Anybody can go see it and, walk and look at it. Now, historians date it around 200 A.D., did I have that up there yet? I've got to keep my slides up. Sorry about that. But anyway, 200 AD is when historians say that this thing is from. And that makes it the oldest surviving uh, physical evidence of Jesus hanging on the cross. However, this is not a religious icon. It wasn't intended to elicit awe or worship. Uh, the inscription says, Alex Amenos worships his God. This is a mockery of a Christian named Alex Amenos. And it's a mockery of God who would die the shameful death as a criminal on the cross. Here's a version with the background noise removed. Notice the donkey's head on the human figure. Did I just pass it up? Yeah, there it is. Sorry about that. There's that donkey's head on the, yeah, there it is. Okay. This was meant to mock the point was to say, look at this idiot Alex Amenos. And remember, this is from 200 AD. Look what kind of a god this idiot has as an object of worship. Yeah, Gentiles, they worship gods. Who do they worship? They worship the sun god, gave them warmth, heat. They worship the harvest god because they gave them food, gave them fertility. But a god on a Roman cross? No, no, no. This is unthinkable. To a Gentile, this was pure foolishness. Jesus' reputation was destroyed in the eyes of Gentiles because of that cross. It was proof that there's no way that this man can be of any importance, no value to this man's life whatsoever. He was dirt hanging on that cross. That's all the proof they needed to know that there was no way he was sent from God. The whole world, including his closest friends, deserted him and they looked at him in shame, which begs the big question. Why didn't this name, Jesus, disappear into oblivion, never to be remembered again? Why wasn't it forgotten, just like the thousands of others who were crucified by the Roman Empire as worthless criminals? What caused his name, above all the others, to continue on? And in fact, not only continue on, it became a household name for nearly 2,000 years. <laughs> in spite of the fact of his shameful death, can someone please explain this to me? Could it have been this? His resurrection? The fact that Jesus' name 
did not disappear into oblivion makes no sense at all if he didn't rise from the grave. When they found the empty tomb, that changed everything. When eyewitnesses saw him walking the earth and talking with people, that changed everything. In fact, there were over 500 witnesses who saw him at the same time. You don't believe that? Well, why should you? Remember the law of rationality? Yeah, <laughs> let me bring that one up. Okay, I want you to meet Pincus Lapid. He's an Orthodox Jew, Jewish historian, Old Testament scholar, very intelligent man. And as a historian, what's his job? It's his job to investigate all the details that you can, evidence that you have and you can find about the things of the past. And he wrote a book, and in the book he says something like this. Quote, I accept the resurrection, not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as a historical event. If the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on that Easter Sunday were a public event which had been made known, not only to the 530 Jewish witnesses, but to the entire population, all Jews would have become followers of Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying that if there were more than the 530 witnesses who saw him, in other words, the whole population, if they all saw him, there'd be no room for Judaism. They all become Jesus followers. That's powerful, wouldn't you say? But he said even more. If the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious moment of faith based only on auto-suggestion or self-deception, without a fundamental life ex faith experience, then this would be much greater than the resurrection itself. He said this would have been a much greater. I'm sorry, I was on the right slide. You weren't reading along with me, were you? <laughs> anyway, he said this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection. I mean, these statements tell us a lot about the nature of the physical evidence that exists concerning this event. I mean, this, this is a statement from a historian, a well-to-do historian, who acknowledged, by the way, this change in the disciples. When did it happen? Overnight. Change in a person is hard to begin with. We all know that. But when you look at the conditions at that time, it's even harder to explain, which is why he said it'd be a greater miracle. The idea of a physical bodily resurrection was hard to accept for people of that day. We're talking about a reversal of death. This was hard to swallow. In fact, it was so pervasive at that time this, to reject this idea of reversible death that even Gentile Christians had a hard time to accept it, even after becoming a Christian. Writing to the uh, Christians in Corinth, Paul said this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Until recently, I had a hard time making sense of what Paul was saying here. How could Christians say there's no resurrection? I mean, they knew Jesus was raised. I mean, that's where they had their faith. That's where they got their conviction from. Yeah, they understood that. 
but for some reason, a personal res, a, a resurrection, a personal reversal of death for everybody else, uh, that's something hard to accept, at least in their mind. And Paul's writing about this in the whole chapter, which implies that their position on rejecting this concept was strong among them. In fact, we can see how strong it was, even in the apostles. Do you remember when those women found the empty tomb? They ran back, right, to tell the apostles, he's alive, the master's alive, he came back from the dead. What? How did they initially take that information? They didn't believe it. That's impossible. Look what they said. Look, look what Luke said in verse uh, in chapter twenty-four. Now it was Ma- Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as idle tale, as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Their words were not real. It was an idle tale as far as the apostles were concerned. Uh, we don't care what you think, ladies. That's impossible. You know, maybe something like that, that they were saying or thinking. Well, yeah, that's what they were thinking. Look at Peter. When he did finally see the empty tomb, what happened? What did he do? Well, Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by, uh, by themselves, and he went home marveling. What had happened? He went home in shock. What just happened? They had a hard time believing what had happened. In Mark 16, we know that because Jesus rebuked them for not believing what those women told them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. In other words, even after others saw him, those who they knew, those women, they were close with them, they didn't believe him. Jesus had to show them convincing proof. There's that law again, a law of rationality. But why? Why were they having such a hard time accepting this before they would see or accept and saw that proof that Jesus gave them? Because Jesus' reputation was destroyed on that cross, and returning from the grave was an impossible concept to swallow. All of this was foreign to their worldview. And yet, in spite of all this, and this is where the big one comes, the big question, in spite of all this, what do we find? Immediately after Jesus' death, as if out of nowhere, this new, immensely powerful religious movement exploded on the world stage, starting from Judea. Christianity did not gradually evolve over hundreds of years, as modern skeptics, critics try to suggest. Something else evolved over hundreds of years, but it wasn't the facts, the story of Jesus' resurrection. Because we have historical evidence which proves it wasn't gradual. Have you heard of Cornelius Tacitus? I know some of you have. 
Tacitus was a Roman senator. He was an orator, a great historian, and he lived between 56 and 120 AD. And in his book called The Annals of Imperial Rome, Tacitus wrote about the famous six-day fire of Rome, which happened in July of 64. And he mentions how Nero gave uh, government support to those who became homeless as a result of the fire and how he began rebuilding the devastated city. However, there were rumors spreading around that Nero was the one that was responsible for that fire. And so to divert attention away from himself, he accused the Christians, go figure, of starting the fire. And that's when he began persecuting them. This was the first major confrontation between Christians and the authorities of Rome. And this all took place, these events, in 64 AD. And we know this as fact because Tacitus wrote about it in his history book. He says, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. He goes on to say, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, that is crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of some of our procreators, Pontius Pilate. Tacitus identified right here that the origin of this movement was Christ. And he documents that he was executed when? During the reign of Tiberius by Pontius Pilate. And then he goes on to say, and the most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Wow. He called it the most mischievous superstition in that it was, it was what? Checked for the moment. What does that mean? Checked for the moment means it was temporarily stopped. Well, of course it was stopped at his crucifixion by Pilate. And his name should have been forgotten right then and there, just like all the other thousands of people who were crucified. But not this one. Tacitus said this source of evil ended up in Rome, which is hundreds of miles away. Let's continue. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty, and then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. They were convicted and found guilty of hatred against mankind. That's a serious crime. And so what was the punishment? Well, it had to be at least equal to their crime. And so he tells us. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Friends, this is history. This is not the Bible. Historical, documented evidence of the existence of Jesus Christ, first of all, the existence of his crucifixion, the the event of his crucifixion, 
and of this new explosive movement called Christianity. How many years did it take for this movement to end up in Rome all the way from Judea? I'm talking about to the, reaching the size. We're talking thousands, thousands of people. The size that Tacitus claimed it was. How long did it take? Less than 30 years. The complete story of Jesus, including his resurrection, did not take three or four hundred years of Christian evolution, as critics try to tell us. Thirty years. And so my questions, I got more. What caused that to happen? What was it that drastically changed their worldview? What changed their lives? To accept that hatred, willing to be persecuted and put to death like this. I mean, this was not made up. These are historical events that need explaining. And Tacitus, he was not the only one who wrote about these things either. We have Lucian of Samosata. He lived in the second century, and he also was no friend of this movement. But he knew a few things about the Christians. His writings record some very interesting things about them, something that they all had in common. He writes, The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. Lucian recognizes that there's a man who Christians worship, one who was crucified. <laughs> By the way, this makes this whole thing foolish. You know what the Greeks were thinking. Let's continue that. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. Now I can understand why you consider them misguided creatures, <laughs> worshiping a man who was crucified, pure foolishness in their minds. But did you notice what he says here about their mindset? They start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time. They start with this, that they're going to live forever. In other words, it's not the end game of their faith. It's the starting point of their conviction. Skeptics today would tell you that, well, wait a minute, you become a Christian first, and then you're brainwashed, and then over time you eventually come to the point where you think or believe you're immortal. Now, Lucian knew otherwise. They start with the conviction, he says. That's what explains why and what they had everything in what they had in common. To be able to face death without fear. Well, what was it that gave him that conviction? What motivated these people to accept that kind of death that Tacitus wrote about? To accept to have contempt for death as Lucian recorded. You see my questions? These things need explaining. Because at that time, when you were brought to trial as a Christian, you knew exactly what you were facing. You only had one chance to spare your life. All you had to do was to publicly deny Jesus Christ and confess Caesar as Lord instead. And then, of course, offer your sacrifice to the idol. 
that was it. You do that, you're free to live. But those people chose to deny Christ. And as Tacitus said, those who pleaded guilty chose this. They chose to be a form of entertainment for the masses that hated them. Horrible torture and death as the audience jeered them on and root and applaud for the animals. This was the real world that these people lived in. This was not made up. This was written by people, not fans of Christianity, that lived in that era. This needs to be explained and answered. What motivated them? What caused them to change their thinking, to be able to face that kind of treatment? And it just wasn't a few cases. It was thousands and thousands of people over decades. I'll tell you what motivated them, unless you can come up with another one. I'll give you my contact information here in a minute. I'll tell you what motivated them. Knowledge of the truth. They knew something that most people today chose to deny or quickly dismiss. They knew that Jesus was raised from the dead. And they knew he promised them the same thing. That they would be raised from the dead also. Never to die again. How else would you explain this phenomenon? The fact of his physical resurrection from the dead guaranteed his promise of eternal life. That's what motivated these people. Nothing else could have. Nothing else could have possibly motivated them like that. And everything that I'm presenting to you is history. It's not... not invented stories. And I'm not the bright one here. I just discovered this stuff as I researched it. You got Google. <laughs> Go check it for yourselves. Find the references in the documents. In fact, contact me. I'll send you my contact information. Ask me. I'll send you. I got a whole list of references that you can go with. You don't even have to buy books. It's all there. We have the history. We have the information. In fact, I'd, I'd, go, I'd go so far to say that it would be harder to believe that Jesus was not raised from the dead because of all the evidence that we have from that time period. That would be irrational. That would be blind faith. Well, I'm in awe of the risen Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm in awe because his offer of eternal life is still valid today. And we have adequate evidence to come to that conclusion. Any questions? (laughs) I hope you have questions. I said a lot of stuff I know and went through it probably quick. Got a few minutes left of, uh, of the program. Anybody have any questions? Um, let me put up my information here. Here's all of our information at 
Bible quest. So obviously, as I told you when we started, Scott, Jeff, and Stephen, they're not with me today. So I took it upon myself to just do the format a little differently today. And you see my name's right there, Drew, in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. You contact me. There's my phone number, 570-228-2033. That's for those of you on the podcast that can't see the screen. And my email address is Drew at BibleQuest.tv. In fact, uh, you can go to BibleQuest.tv at any time. Fill out the form, ask some questions, give me comments. Um, did I make some mistakes in any information? I mean, the history's out there. You can go check it. I'd love to hear from anybody and everybody. And we'll talk about this in future, uh, future broadcasts, future um, talk show. Broadcast. We start every Tuesday at 2 p.m. And uh, everyone's welcome. Okay. Emma, not a question, just a thought. We have creation as evidence of God. Oh, there's another one of my favorite uh, subjects. Yes. Paul said that in Romans chapter 1, that everyone's without excuse because we can see the invisible God his invisible attributes, and I'm paraphrasing, because of what we see in front of us, the creation. Where did this come from? Yeah, there's there's evidence for, for God as well. Yeah, you start putting all this together, and it, it becomes, um, well, I hate to say it becomes easier, but at least to me it does. It becomes easier to realize there is adequate evidence to come to the conclusion that Jesus was raised from the dead. Yeah, I didn't always believe that, and a lot of people still don't. I didn't always believe that, but it's there. The evidence is there. And uh, anybody else? Let's see. I don't see anything on the Facebook page because we're really not broadcasting on Stephen's Facebook page. Okay, anything else before we come to an end? We do have a few questions in the lineup for next week. I don't have them here, nor will I address them right now because we want all the guys involved. Next week, we'll be picking up on those questions. But I, we do like questions and comments from the audience. That's what Bible Quest is all about, exploring the Bible from a number of different angles and thoughts and, and comments. Well, I can't chat with my colleagues here and spend the last few minutes chatting with them because they're not here. And I don't see any other comments coming in. I do thank you, though, Emma, for your observation, your comment. And I think... Uh, I think we're going to end it for today. We're just about at the end, and I hope to see everybody next week. We'll have the whole crew on board next week. And uh, come on in. The water's fine. (laughs) Have a great week, everyone. Thank you also. Thank you. Bye-bye.